When you get off the ferry at Alert Bay, the first thing you see is a large carved sign saying Namgi's First Nation, welcome. This Namgi's village was once a booming fishing town. These days, tourists come here to whale watch, camp, and enjoy the simplicity of the coastal life. There are half a dozen small hotels and inns, not a franchise hotel in sight. The houses climb up the hills, and up top there's a panoramic view across Haddington Passage towards Vancouver Island. Ernest Alfred is a hereditary chief of the Namgis First Nation. He lives in a small house with a big view of the water. When Ernest was a kid, his view of the water was from his parents' fishing boat. I have fond memories uh, growing up in Alert Bay. We were sort of because of the island, and I realized, thinking back, that we were really protected, you know, in a, in a, in a good way, that we were free to roam around the forest and, and go down the street by ourselves uh, without an adult and just be on the beach and explore. When he and his two brothers weren't exploring the forest, they were on the boat. His mom cooking, his father fishing and teaching them. So I have really fond memories of fishing, uh, spending a, a huge part of my life on that boat, you know. That was our life, and I wasn't the only one. You know, our whole community um, sort of ha- have those similar experiences. He thought he would become a fisherman when he grew up and work with his brothers on the boat. I think that was the expectation. You know, it would have been expected that uh, one of the one of me or my brothers would have uh, taken on the responsibility and taken over my dad's job as the skipper. And we don't have my father anymore, so one of us, probably me, would have inherited the fishing license and our beautiful vessel. Her name was the W-11. Then one day in January 1997, the Federal Fisheries Minister Fred Mifflin came to Alert Bay. He came with a promise of money to compensate fishermen like Ernest Alfred's father, who were being pushed out of the fishing industry by what was known as the Mifflin Plan. Under that plan, fishing licenses were being bought up by the government. It was all designed to reduce the commercial fishing fleet to protect the wild salmon from overfishing. We were not the only ones. You know, they cleared out the whole village. We, all the fishermen uh, were displaced, all of the uh, skippers. The number of allowed fishing days had been cut and cut and cut. About 60 salmon boats used to fish out of Alert Bay. That year, 1997, only three went out. Ernest's father's boat was not one of them. And in no time, he couldn't afford the upkeep of his boat. So he sold the boat and his fishing license to the federal government. Ernest was just a kid, but he remembers the feeling of despair in the house. Our boat was a family business. My dad was the skipper. But he also employed his uncle, my great uncle, and three cousins. And sometimes my, uh, my, my older brother or my older cousin went on as a, a skiffman or a deckhand. There was always five crew members on that boat. So that was five families that were directly impacted on my dad's vessel alone. My dad's generation, for the first time in their lives, didn't have a job to go to in the, in the summer. And for the first time, families were going on social assistance. So we watched that, and it was, a, it was a really desperate time. And so a big mission of mine, um, I would love to see, and if I had a billion dollars, what I would do is the last bit of fishermen that we have, 
get them good quality working vessels and start training our young people and getting our young people back on the on the water. But first, the salmon need to come back. And in 2017, as Ernest got into a fishing boat to travel to the Swanson Island fish farm owned by their Norwegian company Marine Harvest, he believed he was taking the first step to make that happen. Welcome to the Salmon People podcast. I'm Sandra Bartlett. This podcast is a co-production with Canada's National Observer. We're crowdfunding to cover the cost of the podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can find a link in the show notes telling you how. And it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and maybe even leave a comment. That helps others find us. Episode 7, The Occupation. When Ernest and his niece Carissa Glendale got in the fishing boat and headed to the fish farm owned by Marine Harvest, he wasn't sure what to expect. Ernest had never been on a fish farm before and really didn't know much about them. Most people don't know much about fish farms. In this podcast, we've been hearing a lot about how they're affecting the wild salmon that pass by them. Fish farms have been around since the 1980s and have been controversial for almost as long. I decided I needed to see a fish farm, and Greek Seafood, one of the big three companies in B.C., offered to show me their hatchery on the west side of Vancouver Island and then take me out to the fish farm called Mochalat North. Rocky Boschman is my host. He's the managing director at Greek Seafood B.C. He's been working in aquaculture since the 1980s. He worked for the competition Marine Harvest for more than 10 years, and has been with Greg since 2016. So he knows this industry. <laughs> we met at the company's Campbell River office and then drove 90 minutes across the island to the hatchery near the village of Gold River. It's a huge site with half a dozen large buildings and new buildings going up. How are you guys? Good. Yeah. Nice to see the rain. Yes, definitely. Yeah. It's uh, much more west coasty, normal weather now. <laughs> Then it feels like smoke season to me. Yeah, exactly. The shoe baths are at the entrance to every building. At the office, we change into safety vests and rubber boots before heading out to the hatchery. We dip our boots into the antiseptic bath before entering. All of this is to protect a precious commodity. The tiny eggs that hatch here, the tiny smolts they become, and the fish that get big enough to be transferred out into the ocean pens. My name is Scott Peterson. I'm the freshwater production director for Greek Seafood BC. Scott is my guide to the hatchery system that moves fish from warehouse to warehouse as they grow, sort of like a daycare where there are infant, toddler, and preschooler rooms. So this is our fry department. One of the key things we really try to focus on is having really good, clean water and really consistent. Uh, fish will get stressed by any change, even if it's good water, but a temperature shift is stressful. Scott shows me the technology that keeps the young fish healthy. So when the feed level gets low enough, the sensor calls for demand. We have an automatic filling system that runs feed through a conveyor system that loads it up here. In the past, you would have a technician packing a 20-kilo bag down the length of the building. Every stage is high-tech and almost completely automated. I don't see any workers. Scott explains that the health of the fish is constantly monitored 
in part by regularly grading them. So this here is our fish grader. We'll actually pass a population of fish through this piece of equipment and it'll move the fish into four different size categories. Typically, we'll grade our fish two or three times before they go to sea and it helps so that the bigger fish, more aggressive fish, they're all kept in the same group so that the smaller fish are given an opportunity to get better access to feed. This might be a good time to tell you about the amazing salmon. Many people know about the salmon jumping waterfalls to get to their spawning grounds, which is pretty impressive. But there's so much more to their awesomeness. This is from an educational video called Life Cycle of the Pacific Salmon. Their long journey starts here, in a riverbed, where thousands of tiny eggs have been laid in a gravel nest called a red. The eggs remain in the gravel throughout the winter while the embryos develop. They will not leave the protection of the gravel until their yolk is used up in about 12 weeks. Some species immediately head out to sea, while others spend up to two years in fresh water. Eventually, they make their way towards an estuary. Estuaries are where fresh water and salt water meet. The fish have been living in fresh water. Now they need to get ready to go into the salty ocean. And they do this with the kind of major physical change that teenagers go through in puberty. It's called smultification, and it's just the first of the amazing changes that happen in a salmon's life. Salmon develop a dark back, a light belly, and will change to have silvery colors. And their gills and kidneys begin to change so they can process salt water. So yeah, its gills and kidneys morph, transform, to build a tolerance for salt water. Being able to live in these two environments is called anadromous. There are about a hundred species of fish like this. Back at the hatchery, Scott Peterson points to one tank where smultification has begun. And you can see if you look closely, some of the fish have already started to smolt. So some of the things you're looking for, so that fish there, you can see the zebra pattern on it. Those are par marks. As they transition from par to smolt, what you'll be able to see is there's a black edge to the fin, the caudal fin. That's a sign of smultification. There are five Pacific salmon species, sockeye, pink, chum, chinook, and coho. And they spend different periods of time in fresh water before going out to the ocean. For example, pink and chum change to silvery smolts right away and head out to sea. The others spend anywhere from six months to two years in the fresh water. But the fish farms raise Atlantic salmon. Why, you might ask? Greek senior manager Rocky Boschman explains. There's lots of different answers to that, but one of the answers is just like any farmer who decides what uh, type of sheep he wants to farm or what type of cattle he farm. They all have in inherent qualities. One thing about Atlantic salmon is look how docile they are. They really are, uh, they deal with stress very well. They're very quiet, so they're easy to handle. And stress is really the enemy of every organism, including us. Also, when fish farming began back in the 1980s, it soon became clear that Pacific salmon wouldn't cooperate with the fish farms. They died in large numbers. So all the farms switched to Atlantic salmon. In the wild, after the fish has been in the ocean for two or more years, it heads back to the river where it was born to spawn. 
How does it know where to go? It remembers the smell of its birthplace. A study found a salmon can detect one drop of water from its home stream mixed in 250 gallons of seawater. Just think about that for a second. The wild fish head back to the estuary so their bodies can make the adjustment again, from salty water to fresh water. Once they reach the estuary, they have another six to eight weeks of travel before they get to the spawning grounds. And there's no eating as they travel. The strength to travel that journey without eating is one thing. But as they swim, their body is making another amazing transformation. Each salmon species does it slightly differently, but their color goes from ordinary silver to layers of red, yellow, green, or brown. The female costume is not quite as bright, which is pretty standard in the animal world. But there's another startling change. Their body changes shape. The males develop humps and hooked snouts and long, thin teeth. This helps the male to attract the female and to defend her spawning territory. Go to Google and search for photos. You'll be amazed at the change. In fact, if I hadn't told you, when you see them side by side, you'd think they were different fish. On a fish farm, most salmon don't go through this. They're sent to market. But Rocky takes me to a brood hatchery where the best-looking, biggest, and healthiest fish are allowed to grow through the physical changes that will bring them up to the point of spawning. So this is our brood stock facility. So this is where we bring animals that have already been out in the saltwater farms, and we bring them back here to uh, prepare them for the, their end of life, which is, uh, which is spawning, giving up their reproductive materials, their eggs, so that we can start the cycle again in the hatchery. So these are our brood animals. It's very quiet in here compared to the other buildings. They're just waiting. They're very, just like in the river, they'd be quietly moving up through the system. Here we're just giving them this quiet building uh, facility to, to wait. Uh, fish here will be sampled every single week using ultrasound. And so we can actually look in and see how the, uh, the eggs are developing. Each animal has thousands of eggs in it. So in this building is all of our egg requirements for the whole entire company for one year. So we probably have about 14 million eggs in this building. So now that I've seen everything in the hatchery system, we head over to the actual fish farm outdoors in the ocean. This is where the fish live while growing into their market weight. Hardly in You'd have to work hard to find it. To see a sick fish in this pen. You know, we give them a very good environment with good feed and low stress. And for the most part, uh, our, our fish live disease-free and healthy until we harvest them out. Rocky says the proof of their health is the premium price they fetch at market. The fish that are harvested out of here are within the processing plant within hours. And then those fish are across the border, uh, can be crossing the border in the United States with a few hours later. And so we do get a premium price for the product. There are a half a million fish in these pens. This is industrial farming, similar to the large-scale farming of pigs or chickens. But Rocky says it's not the same. Despite the numbers, the fish in these pens have plenty of room. They like to jump. Down in the pen, they're just all moving around. They've got lots of room. These pens are 30 meters 
by 30 meters by about 30 meters deep. As I stand looking out over the pens of Mushalat North Fish Farm, I know that Rocky and Scott are proud of their work and this farm. It seems clean and well-managed, with cameras under the water keeping an eye on the fish. But back in 2017, as Ernest Alford and Carissa Glendale headed to a farm owned by another company, Marine Harvest, they had one goal, to make it clear to the fish farm industry that it had to leave the ocean, because that would help the wild salmon. Carissa Glendale had never been to a fish farm until that day, August 24, 2017. She stepped onto the marine harvest property with her uncle, Ernest Alford, and a photographer friend who would record the occupation. We decided to start the occupation, so we had our bags packed, everything we needed. We had, you know, our, our, our kind of duffel bags, our sleeping bags, a couple of tents, a bit of food, and, um, and, and yeah, our cameras. The day I first stepped foot on a fish farm was very emotional. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Papa Balas. my sister Trifla, and my brother Puglas here. Uh, I want to first off by saying that we here uh, we're here not to get in your way of your business. I know that you have uh, things to do here. It is an act of trespassing. I do have to let you know that, and that um, if you want to go through the proper channels to have a tour. We'd be more than happy to set that up and you go through the Marine Harvest main office. Uh, we're here to challenge this, this claim of uh, authority of some kind that, you, uh, that, you, that you've had here on this site. This is my traditional territory, this is my house. And so uh, I'm here to uh, let you know that uh, you're no longer welcome. Uh, we're here uh, peacefully Anything, uh, there's no weapons, uh, your safety is not a, a concern. I'm genuinely concerned for your safety, Absolutely. as this is an operating, uh, you know, Absolutely. industrial yeah. facility. Absolutely. Uh, there's lots of hazards, and I'll just let you know, these are tanks of oxygen, and oh. they purge. Okay. So, you know, for your own interest, don't stand near those, because pressure and heat, yeah. they're designed to purge. Okay. I'll let you carry on. The most important thing is to communicate to your... Uh, supervisors, uh, maybe at a high level, to say that we are here and we're not leaving now. Okay. Uh, are you Eric? Yes. Uh, I, I'm Ernest Alford. I think Hi, we Ernest. should be friendly to one another Hi, because we're we're going to be seeing a lot of each other. Carissa Glendale. Carissa Glendale. Yeah. Okay. After setting up their tent camp on the fish farm walkway, they put GoPro cameras down into the water, and what they saw shocked them. If you were to pull up to a salmon farm, everything looks fine. You see the ocean, and it, you know it's. You see the pens and the all of this huge structure, and you know their fish are jumping and and such. But you really don't see anything at all until you look under the surface. 
then there lies the problem. I can still picture in my head how nasty these fish looked. Some of them were like a mustard yellow, and others would have like huge tumors and tons of skin missing, and some wouldn't have a bottom jaw. Yeah, these are just some of the images that I haven't been able to get out of my head. After the first night, Ernest and Carissa were greeted in the morning by a marine harvest manager. It's still very friendly. How are you? How do you sleep? It's a bit uncomfortable here. cold? I don't know how you guys do it. It's a bit bit uncomfortable. But uh, you know what? Ernest posts on Facebook. Uh, We're at Swanson Island, uh, not too far from Alert Bay. The first night was a little uncomfortable, uh, the noise and, and the fish jumping. Uh, sometimes they splash us, but that's okay. We can deal with a little bit of water. I'm ready and prepared to stay here a lot more uncomfortable nights, though, to make a stand and make a statement about how committed our people now are to remove the removal of these fish farms. Later in the morning, a dozen hereditary chiefs and elders drop by to show that Ernest and Carissa are not acting alone. They have the support of many First Nations. Carissa and Ernest were joined by Melina Dawson on the third day, and over time, other young people came to stay for various periods. This is Melina explaining why she came. I felt it was important to join the occupation, me being able to just, you know, be at an age where I could just drop everything and go do this. And I also thought it was the seminar so important to our culture protecting them, doing this could be an important step. Molina left this farm about 10 days later to join an occupation at another marine harvest fish farm called Midsummer Island. Two other fish farms were also occupied for a short time. The fish farm was chosen because it was in cell phone range. Almost every day, Ernest posted a video to social media. Uh, The Swanson Island occupation here, you see... Uh, oh, that doesn't look good. Uh, there's a, a fish there, if you look in there. He's he's badly scarred, he's got uh, missing an eye. Um, and a lot of his friends don't look very good either. Um, they're lining up against the net, uh, which is uh, here is very um, problem- problematic, a sign of uh, infection and disease. It was only day four, but the fish farm industry called the videos Ernest was posting cherry-picking, looking for weak fish and ignoring all the healthy fish in the pens. The BC Salmon Farmers Association complained that the video was a selective view of the fish farm. Rocky Boschman of Greek Seafood told me that too when he gave me a tour of the Mushalat North fish farm. But if I was to, to say, well, I need, a, I need a picture that's really quite, uh, I want to get a picture of a, of a sick fish, where would I do that? Well, I would come down here, I would take my GoPro and I would put it down in the corner of this pen and I would just wait. Rocky explains that in a pen with 50,000 fish, there are bound to be a few sick ones. Without doubt, within maybe 20 minutes or 50 minutes, I'll be able to get a picture of it. But that one picture can live forever on the internet. That picture can be used over and over again on Facebook posts, on web posts. And it does not tell the story that we're really looking at in this pen, which is 50,000 very healthy, rigorous fish swimming around. 
On the Swanson Island fish farm, it wasn't easy living on an aluminum sidewalk in between large rectangular fish pens. It was cold, it was very uncomfortable, and keep in mind, it's an active active uh, fish farm, so there was machinery running all the time, and, and also there was the smell. You know, it was not a, it was not a nice place to be. Yeah, it's just a constant gross smell, especially like when it would be time for them to feed the fish. Um, it was just automated, so they had like this thing in the center of each pen that would start and it would just start spinning, and it would shoot out the food, the pellets that they fed them also were pretty stink so it was just like a constant nasty smell all the time i know the first week of the occupation we didn't really eat a whole lot because it was just so nasty in the first few weeks the uh, sea shepherd vessel was there i would uh, putter over to the farm every morning in the dinghy and and bring ernest and carissa and molina coffee I couldn't tie directly to the farm, I couldn't touch the farm, but I could raft to boats that were that were tied to the farm. I brought them firewood. I did a GoFundMe so that the people on the farms had winter boots and cell phones. The fish farms were chosen because they were in cell phone range. Everything that happened at the occupation was documented and posted on Facebook and Twitter. Alex was a mother hen hovering nearby. As the days turned into weeks, and then into months, Carissa Glendale had a lot of time to think, while she sat on folding chairs on the walkway, listening to the salmon jump and the feeding arm move in a circle as it spewed out fish pellets. The sounds reminded her of what had been lost and brought back childhood memories of the way it used to be. That story and every story along the B.C. coast begins with salmon, Carissa remembers going fishing with her grandparents for a few days at a time, and when they returned, everyone in the family helped jar the salmon. That's when we uh, will have mason jars, and we'll cut up the fish to fit inside of the jars. Uh, We'll close them up. Then the jars were put in hot water so the fish could cook. We'll make sure they're all sealed properly, and then put them in our cabinets and we'll have uh, fish for quite a few years depending on how much we have it but yeah I can make fish sandwiches and stuff like that with it. You used to be able to just take a jar of fish and that to school and literally just eat it right out of the jar. That's what a lot of our kids used to be able to do anyway. But over time there were fewer and fewer fish to catch. Carissa's family stopped jarring fish because they never caught enough. The fish they managed to catch were eaten for dinner today or tomorrow. We don't have as much as we used to anymore. And so when we do have it, you know, it's pretty much a rare occasion now. The loss of the fish meant the loss of fishing jobs. And not enough salmon to catch meant having to buy food at the grocery store. Hard to do without a job. Suddenly, the schools had to begin breakfast and lunch programs. My life definitely would be different if we still had as much fish as we used to back in the day. You know, 
all the bears, all the orcas, the eagles, everything would be thriving because it's all one cycle. Like everything's connected. Instead of fishing, Carissa studied ecotourism. And after doing an internship at Seawolf Adventures, she was hired. Now she's learning to handle one of the big boats. This Indigenous-owned company takes tourists whale-watching, on Indigenous culture tours, and even visits to grizzly bear areas. It's pretty amazing. I definitely enjoy it. It's hard to call it work. <laughs> but we, we go out into the Broughton and... Uh, one of the spots we go to is actually in my traditional territory where my family originated from. Getting back to my roots and connecting to the land and then again out there and learning more and to be able to share share that experience with our guests is pretty cool. Meanwhile, 300 kilometers south in Victoria, the Martin Sheen had arrived for its third year supporting Alex Morton's research. It was interesting. The boat, the boat arrived, and uh, it was a Saturday. And around 7 p.m., four Canadian customs officers boarded the Martin Sheen in Victoria Harbor downtown. Uh, and, and something very strange happened, which is that the captain and crew basically were detained on board, and they were questioned for five straight hours. That was Sea Shepherd campaign coordinator Lockie McLean. Lockie says what had been a fast, simple procedure in previous years took a menacing turn. You know, I've, I've sailed vessels in and out of Canada from the States many times, and, and usually you pick up a little box on the end of the dock, you call Canada Customs, there's a, an officer in Moncton or somewhere that picks up, give the boats details. And, uh, you know, they just want to know the passport numbers to whoever's on board and and you're done. So it's usually a very straightforward, short procedure. Uh, Nothing more than a formality, which might last 20 minutes. The Martin Sheen is not a commercial ship. It doesn't transport cargo. It's classified as a private yacht. The Martin Sheen skipper had been hired in Hawaii to deliver the ship to Canada. He wasn't a Sea Shepherd member and knew nothing about what the ship would be doing in Canada so he couldn't answer many of the customs officers' questions. We were chatting on WhatsApp. I advised him to basically just have the officers, you know, look on social media uh, because all of the information about the ship's past seasons in BC could be found, you know, on the ship's Facebook page, on the Martin Sheen's Facebook page. We had everything. We had nothing to hide. But that just made the customs officers more persistent. The officers continued to state that they didn't believe his story. Um, And then they switched gears and they started wanting to know if Alexander Morton would be boarding the vessel and when. Um, And of course, the skipper on board didn't know that information because I hadn't shared it with them. Asking if Alex Morton was going to be on board was more than just an odd question. It suggested that the customs officers had been briefed about the Martin Sheen's activities in 2016 and 2017, activities that were not illegal. That became more obvious as the questioning continued. And then a really strange question came up where he was asked uh, why Sea Shepherd would be doing research when Canadian DFO uh, already does plenty of research on 
salmon farms. Clearly, the customs officers knew a lot about what the ship had been doing in the past few years, more than the poor delivery skipper knew. And so, again, you know, he was at a loss for words. He's an American skipper, no knowledge of the BC coast and the campaign or salmon or anything. The crew was able to go into Victoria, but the skipper was not allowed to leave the ship all weekend until a hearing on Monday morning at customs offices in Victoria. Things also took a turn at the occupation. One day when Carissa and another woman were on their own at the Swanson Island fish farm, a boat pulled up and two burly men working for Marine Harvest got out. Two other men stayed inside the boat. Carissa went down the gangplank and met them at the bottom. And the workers were actually looking for Ernest and they thought that I was hiding him. So they were trying to go up the ramp from the dock to get up to the cabins to go look for him. How you doing? Good. Coming here to see Ernest. Yeah, we already set up. By this time, the occupiers had stopped sleeping on the walkways and had a cabin on land near the fish farm office. One of the men was videotaping. One of the occupiers was also videotaping. The two men are aggressive right away. Excuse me. Don't touch me. Move. Move. No. He rips open his jacket and pulls out a card. I am a licensed... I'm a security guard. You need to move now. You're not a security guard at this place here. Yes, I am. No, you're not. One of the men is trying to move around Carissa without touching her. Carissa is standing with each arm on the gangplank railing, her feet anchored on the step. The second man tries another tactic. I think this could be just better if we just leave. Yeah. Let's have him come down. No. He won't be long. No. Yeah. He told you guys it's not here already, no. so... You guys can leave. You guys can leave. No, he isn't. And you don't have permission to go up. And then suddenly, each man puts up his arm and tries to break Carissa's hold on the railing. Carissa pushes back. Unless they want to get rough or violent, they can't budge her. Carissa appears calm, but her face is set. You guys can contact and tell him to come down. He's not here. Can we come up and see? No. Then how do you know he's not here? The men suggest they'll stay all night. You just no, tried to you just tried to push me around. Because you're hiding. Two yeah. men trying men. to push a woman around. The men clearly don't know what to do. They have an assignment they can't carry out. One of the men says his family is ninth generation Canadian. Grandfather came here in the eighteen hundreds. Carissa shoots back. Her family's been here much longer, thousands and thousands of years. Finally, Carissa says, if you have to know, Ernest had to take his mum for eye surgery. They ask if he's coming back. Carissa says she doesn't know. One of the men's two-way radios squawks. Hey, Dave, you happy? He gives the other man a nod, and they walk back to their boat, looking rather unhappy. Carissa only found out later what the men wanted. This is when they were trying to serve us court papers for the injunction. I phoned Ernest and told him what happened, and 
he was furious. And so he ended up getting on the phone and calling them and being like, what the hell? Why did you guys do that? I'm not even there. If you want to serve me papers and that, you can come to Alert Bay. This confrontation happened after 190 days of occupying the fish farm. 190 days of being away from the comforts of home, friends, and family. It was a hard day. What kept me going was my nieces and nephews. They were my strength through the whole thing. I was fighting for them, for their future. I just kept remembering that. I'd rather me have to go through it than have them have to go through the same thing. But now Marine Harvest had run out of patience with the occupation, and they were going to court to ask for an injunction to get the occupiers off the Swanson Island farm. They'd been successful in getting an injunction against the occupiers of other fish farms in December of 2017. Ernest was served with court papers and almost immediately put up a video demanding the fish farms leave. Swanson occupation. Uh, Today's date is April the 6th, 2018. You cannot run railroad over the First Nations people who call this place home any longer. And he went after industry for its relentless criticism of the science. You know, that scientific debate is over also, because there's a human rights aspect that uh, everyone is forgetting about. It's our people who have a say in our territory. It's our people who have said, no consent, no agreement, get out. And he took a shot at fisheries and oceans. Shame on the DFO. I think that uh, the pressure needs to be on uh, the federal government to get out of bed with this industry. Shame on the DFO for letting the fox uh, look after the hens. Marine Harvest got its injunction in May of 2018, and Ernest, Carissa and the others decided to obey it. They had been on the Swanson Lake Farm for 280 days. In that time, they had received visits from First Nations, environmentalists like David Suzuki, and politicians. They'd received media attention around the world. It was time to move the fight elsewhere. It turned out there were others intently interested in the movements of the Martin Sheen. There was about five guys on it, and they were running alongside of us with long lenses, taking photographs of everything, I guess. But they followed us. You know, everywhere we went, they were behind us. If we were sitting in harbors at anchor, they drifted in the harbor with us. Next time on The Salmon People, Intimidation. The Salmon People podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Story editing by My Frozen Headphones Production. Sound engineering by Damien Kearns and Ben Ramos-Salzberg. And it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and maybe even leave a comment. That helps others find us.